Well, this morning we continue our series that was supposed to be only a few weeks, but as pastors have learned in seminary, we go long. But it's the subject of eschatology that we are looking at, the study of the last days. And many, I don't believe, realize that the Bible is replete with prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. As I've stated often, there are 300-some prophecies concerning His first coming, but there are over 600 prophecies concerning His second. And obviously, when we go through trials and troubles and tribulations like we are currently experiencing here in our nation... Christians begin to ask themselves the question, are we getting closer to the Lord's return? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that no one knows the day or the hour, but I think I can say for conf- with confidence that we are 2,000 years closer than we've ever been before. And of course, we see perilous times within our nation, but we've had perilous times throughout history. But we also see that the stage has been set globally with the return of the nation of Israel in their land, as God predicted and said they would in Ezekiel 36 and 37. The writers of the New Testament, the apostles themselves, I believe, lived in the anticipation that the return of Jesus Christ was imminent, that it could happen at any moment. And they lived accordingly. They pursued holiness in their life. They wanted to live full on, with full surrender to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, believing that the time is short and that His return was going to occur in their lifetime. In fact, a rumor had even arisen that the Apostle John wouldn't die before the return of Jesus Christ. Of course, that wasn't a true rumor, but it was a rumor nonetheless. When Paul came to the church of Thessalonica, Scholars believe that he was there for only a period of about three to six weeks, a short period of time, compared to the other cities in which he planted cities. And yet he felt it as a necessity to teach them about the prophecies concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his second letter, he appears to have now discovered that they were shaken in mind and in heart due to the fact that they had received word that they had uh, now entered into that period of time that the Bible in New and Old Testament alike calls the day of the Lord. It is a period of time where God judges and holds accountable all of the world for the sin and and, uh, the wickedness and so forth that has been conducted within it and within the lives of the individuals. However, though, it also entails the restoration of all things back onto God. That's why the name of the series is The End is Only the Beginning. You know, we often have a tendency to read up in Revelation 19, we read about Jesus returning on the white horse. We say, Amen, God bless, Maranatha, come quickly. And often we stop there. But Revelation goes on to chapter 20, 21 and 22, which tells us that that God will create a new heavens and a new earth that has never been stained by sin or by death. I can't even fathom that. But that's what he promised us. So to steady the minds and the hearts of those in the church of Thessalonica, he writes a second letter and reminds them of the truth. 
And in reminding them of the truth, he hopes to settle their hearts and their minds. Again, they were fearful. They were worried. They were going through a very difficult time, and so their circumstances would seem to confirm what they had been told. That, oh, this must be the tribulation. This must be the judgment of God. This difficulty, this trial, trouble, tribulation that we go through. This must be the day of the Lord. And Paul says, no. For certain events have to take place first before that will occur. But the manner in which he steadies their heart is by reminding them of the truth. Today, so many Christians are so fearful, so anxious, so worrisome. And the best thing we can do for them is to remind them of the truth. To remind them of the character of the God in whom they follow. To remind that he's in control and nothing will ever take anything out of his control. That he knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's happening. He has allowed it for purposes that probably right now you and I would not understand, but we'll understand eventually. We know that he allows trials, troubles, and tribulations in the life of his followers for the purpose of drawing out from them the character of Christ, using it as a vehicle to conform them into the image of Christ. Maybe drawing out from their hearts areas that are in need of repentance. Or maybe freeing them from sins that they refuse to repent of. So Paul steadies their heart by reminding them of the truth. So for our look at eschatology, we've decided to look at chapter 2 of the book of Thessalonians, where Paul reminds them of the, of the events that must occur before the great day of the Lord is to take place. And we are using this as we have called our roadmap to go through such a an, an complex and uh, uh, comprehensive uh, theological topic such as eschatology. We could be in it until the Lord returns and still not finish. But if he returns, then, well, what a better way to finish it. But Paul, I think, gives us a beautiful roadmap to help us understand the events that must take place before the great day of the Lord, His return, and the restoration of all things. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of 2 Thessalonians. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is His second coming, and our gathering together to Him, we ask you, and that is speaking of the rapture of the church, which we'll talk about more in a moment, uh, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if it was from us, as though the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had come. He says in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember 
that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And now, verse 6. You know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so, until he is taken out of the way. Paul wanted them to know that before the great day of the Lord were to come, it would be preceded by a falling away, an apostasy. It would be preceded by the rise of the man of sin, the one that we more uh, know as the Antichrist, the individual that will be the personification of all that is opposite thereof, Jesus Christ. But Paul now tells us that he reminded them, he told them of these things when he was with them in that short period of time, three to six weeks, in their Bible studies together, in Paul's teaching of them, of God's Word. Now he's saying, but also remember that I told you that the man of sin, the one we know as the Antichrist, cannot arise to power cannot be, uh, be placed in a uh, position of prominence in this world until that which is restraining him is removed. There's something holding him back, purposely holding him back, keeping him for an appointed time. Though the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, meaning that there are already those who are doing all that they can to kick against the desired will of God, to live contrary to the prescribed manner and the morality standards of the Bible, that there are those, as Romans 1.18 states, that are suppressing the knowledge of God within their hearts and within their minds to ease their conscience and to refuse to acknowledge Him for who He truly is. In fact, that word suppress that we find in Romans 1.18 is actually the same Greek word that we find here in our text used for the term restrainer. Individuals suppressing the truth in ungodliness. And as a result, as you know, Paul writes in Romans 1 that God has given them over to the lusts of their hearts. This restrainer, one who is keeping back the man of sin from coming into power, taking the world scene, stepping onto the global stage, beginning his reign upon the earth. So the question then becomes, who is or what is the restrainer that is holding the Antichrist back. Now, this has been a subject of hot debate throughout the centuries. And there are many different opinions concerning the identity of who this restrainer is. There are many who believe and suggest that the restrainer is the Roman Empire or the Emperor Claudius at this time, uh, Nero shortly after, during the time in which these letters were written, that are holding back 
the rise of the Antichrist. Problem with that, uh, we don't know Caesar anymore other than a dressing for our salad, correct? So it can't be the Roman Empire, and it can't be the emperor because he's no longer on the scene. So those who have initially suggested the Roman Empire then went to believe that it's the principle of law and order and the political leaders that God has given us that God is using to restrain the one who Satan will use to deceive the whole world. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't think government's doing a very good job of that, do you? I don't think our governmental systems are capable of restraining such a one, do you? Restraining evil and wickedness. They do to an extent, obviously, but not to the degree that we have mentioned for us here, especially when we read past verse 7 and discover what the Antichrist will do when he does come to power. The Antichrist is a figure that is mentioned throughout the Old and New Testament alike. In fact, the book of Daniel gives us a number of accounts of this individual. The book of Revelation also does, especially when you come to Revelation chapter 13. This individual that will be the uh, uh, everything that Christ is not. The Bible tells us that he will come to the world stage through political means. He will appear to have knowledge and wisdom that has un, hasn't been heard before. And he'll be able to do what no other leader in our society has ever been able to do. On a global scale, he'll be able to unite politics, economics, and religion all at the same time. Eventually, though, like the Roman Empire, emperors, excuse me, he will then place himself as a deity over those three extensions. And he will govern the whole world in such a manner. In the first three and a half years of his governance, the Bible tells us very clearly, will be peace and prosperity but then sudden destruction come upon the world. For Revelation chapter 13 tells us that this individual will appear to have been killed, losing his right eye and his right hand. The woeful shepherd of Zechariah, I believe, speaks of this individual, the Antichrist that will rise in the last day. But then on the third day, something uniquely happens He appears to be healed from his mortal wounds and rise again. I think I read someone else rising on the third day. Who was that again? Oh, Jesus. See, Satan is not a creator. He's a counterfeiter. And so he's simply counterfeiting that which God has already done. And the world will start to hail him as a divine being after that. It'll be at that point that the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem will then be occupied by an image of the Antichrist, and that image will appear to come alive. And he will demand to be worshipped by all of the world, demanding allegiance and loyalty to be expressed by a mark given, either on the hand or on the forehead. And without this mark, the Bible clearly tells us no one will be able to buy or sell. It is interesting to me that so many of the manners in which he will govern are already taking place. 
Employees of large companies are taking electronic chips within their hands for many different purposes. Some societies are now looking to further the use of such uh, uh, technology to also include medical records and financial data and so forth. The banks of America specifically have been looking for a manner in which to allow for the transaction of currency, but also diminishing the number of cases of fraud, and this would do this to a large extent. Now, some of you may, have been, may be thinking, oh my goodness, what have we walked into? I didn't know all that was in the Bible. God tells us so much about the last days that the details are ominous. And Paul is saying that this individual who will initiate this is being restrained. Some believe that it's the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel and those who proclaim the gospel. But others believe that it's a force of evil and maybe even Satan himself. Some suggest that it's false prophecy and false prophets. I don't know how that works. And the last one is that many believe that it's the recreation of the Jewish state and Jerusalem that hold back this Antichrist. But none seem to be sufficient and competent in doing so. There has to be something greater restraining this individual than simply a governmental system. There needs to be something restraining him that is governed by God. Why do I say that? Paul states very clearly that the lawlessness that is already ensuing is a mystery to those. We don't fully understand, but what he is actually saying is this, that the lawlessness that we see in our world are all pretenses to what's eventually going to take place, meaning that they're all working for a common goal. You know, when I was in technology before becoming a pastor and working on what you guys use every single day, and that is cloud computing, I was working on this in the 90s when it was still in its infancy. But everyone knew the ramifications of such computing. Everyone knew that once we uh, interjected and combined cloud computing with an adequate manner of data transfer, meaning that we got past what was called, remember, 14.4 modems? Do you remember when our computers had a dial-up to go out to the Internet and they made that weird sound? Everybody born in the last 15 years are like, what is he talking about? I just go to my phone, it's right there. Yeah, we had a dial and then, you know, turn the crank and, you know, and all that. So the infrastructure wasn't there. It was premature to carry any kind of significant data load. But it's incredible what we can do now, right? It's incredible that we run our TVs off of our Wi-Fis now. And It's amazing how much uh, information, we're talking terabytes now of information that we can upload to the cloud. When we, if we got eight megabytes, we rejoiced back then, you know. The technology has grown immensely, but it has also created the infrastructure for such a society. So the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's an interesting, he's saying that 
Even the good things that are created will be used in a sinful manner. Isn't that interesting? The internet, when it was founded, it was incredible, the information that you could easily access, but it wasn't long before the depravity of man's heart was found all over the internet. And of course, now you have so much, some of the most vile things happening on the internet. So what is restraining this individual? Paul says all of this is part of a mystery. It's something that is currently being revealed to the church in the day of Paul. And there are many mysteries throughout the New Testament. The mystery of the church, that Jew and Gentile would all be subjected to the head of Christ in a body called the church. The gospel itself was a mystery to the degree that it would save people. It would be the power of God, foolishness for those who are perishing, but the power of God for those who are being saved. You know, the um, understanding that Christ would dwell in us in Colossians, Paul says, is another mystery that he would reside within us and that we would become the temple of the Holy Spirit. These were mysteries revealed in the New Testament writings by the apostles through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This also is a mystery. The rapture of the church is a mystery that has now been explained and given to us in the Word of God. But the identity of the restrainer actually goes back to the book of Genesis. Chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, we are just about to enter into the first judgment, global judgment that the world pronounces, I'm sorry, God pronounces upon the world. And we here at Calvary believe that there was a global flood. It wasn't localized, it was a worldwide flood. Just as also we believe in a physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. But God said in Genesis 6-3 that something needed to occur before judgment came upon the earth. He said this, And the Lord said, He says, For my spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. God was saying that judgment is coming in 120 years. And my spirit will be removed no longer dwelling with man. I believe that the one restraining the Antichrist from rising to power is the same Spirit. I believe it is the Holy Spirit working in and through you and I, the church, that is restraining the rise of the Antichrist. And one, at one moment, we shall be removed allowing for the Antichrist then to take his his position of power within the world. One of my favorite commentators, Dr. John Wolver from Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote this, if I may. He says, The Holy Spirit of God is the only person with sufficient supernatural power to do this restraining. Some object, object to this, but... No other has the power in which the Spirit is capable of manifesting. So how does he do this? Professor Wolverd writes, through Christians 
whom he indwells and through whom he works in society to hold back the swelling tide of lawlessness living. How will he be taken out of the way? When the church leaves the earth in the rapture of the church. The Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way in the sense that his unique, that his unique lawless restraining ministry through God's people will be removed. The removal of the restrainer at the time of the rapture must obviously precede the day of the Lord. Paul's reasoning is thus a strong argument for the pre-tribulation rapture. The Thessalonians were not in the great tribulation because the rapture had not yet occurred. Now I believe this is consistent with what we see throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. Let me take you back, if I may, to the book of Job, the oldest book of the Bible. Some may not know that. But before Satan could do anything to Job, he needed the permission of God to allow him to do that, didn't he? If I may, let me read Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where did you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Gee, thanks, God. (laughs) Job's a unique guy. I mean, I, I, I can't wait to meet him. Um, you know, we think COVID's bad. Just read Job. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that has, he has on every side? Meaning, aren't you protecting him, God? You have blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Nothing could happen unless God allowed it to happen. And so that would be consistent that the restrainer be the Holy Spirit working through the church. And when God deems it necessary, will remove the Spirit in the economy in which He is working today. Let me explain what I mean by that. When the Spirit of God arrived in Acts chapter 2, Peter made it clear that this was the fulfillment of Joel, a prophecy found in the book of Joel. And he said, now the Holy Spirit is going to work uniquely, and each and every person is going to have the Holy Spirit. That's what he was alluding to. And they would dream dreams and have visions and be given gifts. All the way up until the time that Jesus was about to return. See, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit wasn't given to each and every person as it is today of those who are in Christ. 
The Spirit of God in our lives, once we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, then resides in our heart. As a down payment, an earnest, meaning that God is saying, I am committing to you my spirit for one day I shall return. And the guarantee of that return and you being with me is the spirit residing in you today. But remember in the Old Testament, he anointed individuals with the spirit God did. And what's interesting is that David prayed a prayer that you and I would never consider praying. And that is, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I wouldn't think of even praying that prayer because that is not possible today because of the work of Christ and my salvation and being baptized into the body of Christ through the Spirit of God. But then we get to Revelation chapter 7. And the 144,000 are sealed. That word sealed in the Greek is the same word that appears in Ephesians for the word that Paul used by saying that we've been sealed with the Spirit, now he uses that direct word that God has individually sealed those 144,000. Meaning it appears that during the tribulation period, the economy of the Spirit works in the world as it did in the period of the Old Testament. That's something for you to chew on right there. So it is interesting that Paul says... And it's consistent that God would allow the Antichrist to come to power when he sees fit. The purpose of the Spirit, in John 16, 7 through 11, when Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, one to come alongside of you, the paraclites, one who comes uh, with you and in you and upon you. The purpose of him is, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you, speaking of the Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they did not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. With the Spirit working in that manner through the church, you can see why it would be impossible for the Antichrist in his satanic power to rise to power within our world. We're not saying that the, uh, Satan is not working today. He is. We're not saying that um, he resists and continues to go about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. He is. For his purpose of coming into the world is, as Jesus said, to steal, kill, and to destroy And he's doing a great job at it. But the rise of the Antichrist will not be permitted until God will allow it to be permitted on this earth. And that happens in Revelation 6, verses 1 through 2. It is the first rider on the first horse of the four horse of the Apocalypse. Now when I saw the Lamb open up one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And I look and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow, not a sword. And a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And I agree with the scholars who believe that this is the emergence of the Antichrist on the world scene only to be allowed after the restrainer is moved, removed, 
that restrainer being the Holy Spirit working in the capacity that he is today through the church. And in the New King James Bible, they who translated believe this also, and they capitalized the word he there. This is God holding this back. The rapture of the church is the next event that will take place. There are no prophecies that need to yet be fulfilled before the rapture of the church can take place. And I'm speaking and teaching on a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe that God has promised that we will not experience the wrath of God. The wrath of God is what's poured out in the seven-year period of time between Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. Though I believe that, let me make it clear. It does not mean that God will keep us from all tribulation or all troubles or all trials. He doesn't promise that in his word. But I do believe that he promises that he will keep us from his wrath. Why? Because those hours that Christ hung on the cross and darkness shrouded the earth, The wrath of God was poured out upon him on our behalf. He paid that price for you and I. He suffered the separation from the Father. He suffered the uh, darkness. He suffered the judgment. He suffered the death that you and I were destined to suffer. The Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. And through the gospel, we have been adorned for him and for his return. To be caught up in the air. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that means die. But we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will arise incorruptible and shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortality has put on immortality, then we shall be brought up to pass the saying, I'm sorry, brought to pass the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. Paul's saying that some of us will not die, but will be changed in a moment. Given that glorified body that Paul promises in 2 Corinthians 5, the mansion that's not built with hands that Jesus promises in John 14, that we will be spared the, the wrath that's poured out on this world because the wrath has been poured out on Christ instead of upon us. That was a great place for a hallelujah. You guys totally blew it. But think about that. That Christ paid that ultimate penalty for us that we may be saved. Paul talked about the rapture further in his first letter to the Thessalonians when he said this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep 
in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say this, and I'd like to leave it with this if I may. Therefore, let us comfort one another with these words. <laughs>